Welcome to the Equalizer podcast. I'm your host this week, Becky Morgan, and I'm joined today by Equalizer's founder, Jeff Kasuf. Jeff, how are you doing today? Good. The sun is shining. It's a beautiful day in the Northeast, and, and we've got plenty of NWSL action to talk about. So always, always good to do it. Love it. And today we're going to be talking about the youth movement in U.S. women's soccer, and particularly in the NWSL Ever since 2021, when Trinity Rodman was drafted out of high school at the age of only 18 to the Washington Spirit, and then 15-year-old Olivia Moultrie sued the NWSL to sign with the Portland Thorns and won, ever since that kind of start of the whole process, there has just been an influx of young teenage talent into the league, when previous to this, it had been banned for anybody under 18 to play in the NWSL. Now, though, only a few years later, we have teenage players like Jaden Shaw in San Diego and Alyssa Thompson not just getting signed by teams and getting minutes, but actually playing as bonafide standouts and difference makers on their clubs. So, Jeff, you just wrote a great article for Equalizer a few days ago about this youth movement movement and what it means for the NWSL. So, you know, this year in particular, we've seen a real influx of talent. What does this mean for the NWSL? And, you know, what what have you seen that's really changed in this year versus past years? Yeah, I think right off the bat, the change is is obviously there's been some rules created to to create mechanisms to allow teams to sign these types of players, these younger players, which is, you know, frankly, not only didn't exist before, but was such a, a point of tension, right? Because, I mean, you mentioned Jaden Shaw. She goes and trains with the Washington Spirit in preseason last year. Spirit are interested in signing her. And, and you know, at the time, there is no mechanism for them to do so other than these antiquated rules of discovery rights. And, um, you know, San Diego has the first line to Shaw. And, you know, I, I think that they went through, as best we know, the the sort of proper motions and protocol to make sure that it was the right fit for both of them. But, you know, if you're the spirit, you're sitting there saying, well, she just trained with us. We identified her. So, you know, I think the rules first and foremost, and then obviously, you know, maybe this is a bit of a chicken and egg where, you know, are the rules encouraging this? Of course, do the rules now exist because teams wanted them? I'd say so. But, you know, the fact that teams are signing these younger players, we've got a pair of 15 year olds. I mean, we just had a national TV game this past week where they entered the game almost simultaneously off the bench for their respective teams. And, um, you know, we've got beyond that, even we've got this U18 trialist rule, which is not necessarily always going to lead to players being signed, but allows for players under 18 to train with these pro teams, which, you know, again, is in in some ways is the U S catching up to the world or or at least some of the better setups in Europe. And Spain is one that I think is often referenced where, You've got 16-year-olds in professional environments, you know, somewhat regularly, at least, you know, the best of them. So, you know, I think just to that point, this is, I think this is always sort of, we're talking about that that 1% of the 1% in some ways, right? And and that's always going to be the case. But, you know, it's it's undeniable that there's a clear volume here in a way that didn't exist before, because before it was, it was nobody. It was Olivia Moultrie suing the league. And then, you know, a little bit of a gap and um, even Trinity Rodman coming in, you know, I think 
the you know she obviously had committed to Washington State. The the season gets canceled for the pandemic, so she never plays there. And you know some of the rules around that time that adapted from the NWSL were a little bit pandemic driven too. So um, you know I think we're finally seeing a change in the mindset at a league level, and then you know we're seeing the knock on effect of that now that you know some teams recognize the opportunity that they they can um, that they can sign these players at such a young age. And so, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the opportunity and the U18s in particular are just kind of a fascinating case because we're in a point of expansion. We know that there's going to be a double expansion next year. And then just a day or so ago, um, Commissioner Jessica Berman said that we can look for another double expansion in 2026. U18s currently in the CBA are completely protected. So if you're under 18 and you're signed with a team, you are not going to be taken during expansion. You don't need to be protected. Um, so they're, they're kind of interesting players in that regard. And then you also just get the, like, you know, you had the dueling teams trying to sign like the youngest player. It felt like it was getting broken practically every week. Um, you know, with a different 15 year old being signed and just a few days difference to make them the youngest player. Do you think for some of these reasons, some of the protections they offer, just kind of the the publicity they bring, the attention that it's all bringing, do you think every team is going to be chasing their own Jaden Shaw or even Alyssa Thompson right now? I think every team will be looking much harder at that sort of age group and, and sort of using their networks. I mean, for better or worse, and, and unfortunately we've seen some of the worst lately, I think, um, you know, th- there are in this league and in, in women's soccer in this country, I think the the youth soccer ties to the pro game are typically pretty significant at a coaching level. Right. So I, I do see, you know, you would hope that, and maybe it's it's a little bit too optimistic, but I think you would hope that the marketing side of that is really a, a non-factor, right? I mean, that's not, um, you know, certainly is it is it a sort of knock-on effect in a situation of the hometown player of Alyssa Thompson in LA going number one to LA in the draft? I mean, certainly there is a story there, right? But that's not a driving factor, um, I don't think it is, and you would certainly hope it's not, but I do think teams will be looking for that talent, right? So, you know, you said it. I mean, th- there are stipulations here, right? I mean, the U18 rule, you can only have uh, two on the entry list at a given time. So, you know, it's it's not as if a team, even if they had unlimited funds and, and resources, could go out and say, you know, we just signed 10 different 18-year-olds or 15-year-olds yeah. or what have you. But, you know, I think you have to look at this as – I mean, we, we were talking about a long-term investment, right? Like it's going to be interesting and it, it might be a little bit tricky in that certainly you want to identify the talent. You know, there has to be a mutual interest. It has to work mutually. There has to be a long-term commitment. But, you know, I think part of that is like many things in the NWSL, this is a bit of the wild west, right? Because yeah. it's the early days, the rules will inevitably evolve. And at the moment, there's no there's no restrictions. There's no geography restrictions. There's no, it is just, you know, we, we found a player, we ID'd her. We want to bring her in as a U18 trialist and and maybe sign her. Right. So I mean, you look at Chloe Ricketts in Washington coming from Michigan, um, you know, from what I heard from, from others outside of that spirit organization, it was not even a player necessarily on a radar to the level of this could be a player who turns pro at this age. I mean, maybe, Mm -hmm down the line. But so, you know, 
I think you have to tip a hat in in some cases to say, okay, here's a team identifying a talent in a way that others didn't maybe and recognizing it. But also, you know, what does that mean for, um, you know, a team that I think if you're a team, you look at this situation and say, I think there's going to be situations where you can look at a player and say, we, we see maybe the long-term value and the trade-off here is, Either we think it could work and we sign her and we have to sign her until she's at least 18. So it could be a, it should be a multi-year deal and we develop her and it either works or it doesn't, but we've got her. We don't have to wait for her in the draft. We don't have to play games with discovery rights. I think that is going to be the thing that is obviously of big appeal, but has to be figured out at a league level because that creates a bit of an arms race Mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, one, maybe the player on the other end doesn't totally recognize and two could be detrimental to to that player if not handled properly. So that's where I think, yes, I mean, teams are going to be and are actively looking for those players. I'm sure that it, this has piqued the interest of players who think that they're ready and, and maybe are actively trying to get on these radars of teams. And, you know, what does that mean? I think there's sort of limitless knock-on effects that the league, um, you know, to some degree has to plan for, and to some degree there's just only so much you can predict and predict, and you're going to have to adapt as you see, you know, let's be real as you see rules exploited. That's, that's how rules change. We, we yeah. see how they get exploited and, and they get changed. So you mentioned, you know, the fact that there's going to be a bit of an arms race for some of these players. And you also mentioned more of the developmental side that like if you, sign a 15 year old and you're probably going to sign them for a multi-year deal until they're 18. So, you know, we've had these cases of teenage players I and mean, maybe not, not all of them were 15 or 17 and 18, but you know, like Jaden Shaw and Alyssa Thompson just coming in and just killing it from the start. Trinity Rodman, of course, too. Olivia Moultrie is absolutely doing an amazing job right now. And previously when she was first signed with the team, she did fine. She could hold her own, you know, mostly as a bench player, but she's really so far at the beginning of this year, finally come into her own and I think is playing like the player that she has been promised to be. And she's only 17. So, you know, that was two years of development. And then you have a 17 year old who is, you know, very advanced, who is now playing on your team. Do you think teams are going to have to be wary <laughs> of the fact that, you know, you're high, you're, you're, you're signing a 15 year old, you know, there are a lot of, that can go a lot of different ways. You know, they're not fully adult. They're not fully, necessarily ready for the rigor of the sport obviously many of them are but do you think these are mainly being these these players are mainly going to be seen as development projects for the future or do you think that most people are going to be expecting an immediate payoff from some of these young players yeah i think it's a little bit of both somewhere in between you know it can't be there can never be an immediate expectation and i think that's where you know the 15 year olds are are a very different story i want to say than the 18 year olds here right sure that gap is as small as that seems in a numerical value, I think that's significant. But, you know, the, the early and immediate success of Alyssa Thompson, um, again, we're talking about the 1% of the 1%. And, and in her case, I, I think it's an even smaller number, yeah. right? But a generational um, player. Yeah. 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 But I mean, we're seeing immediate success for Jaden Shaw. You know, Olivia Moultrie, immediate, I, I think is a relative term, but, you know, mm-hmm. certainly has become a player that is very important to Portland and, you know, was immediately in sort of the senior environment at, I mean, let's be serious at age 13. That was, I mean, before again, like, you know, 
I think it's worth acknowledging anytime we talk about this, the the path that she paved. And yes, you know, how many people in the world could have had their family uproot them from one location to another to pursue sure. this dream? How many people could have had that talent? Sure, that's all part of the conversation. But, um, you know, she has, by way of suing the league, opened this path um, and and suing it and forcing them to settle in a way yeah. that if you talk to some some better legal minds than myself around, you know, there, there was some worry that her entire case might challenge the entire nature of the league's claim to being a single entity, which, yep. you know, would have been a real problem. And that's, <laughs> I, I think, why you saw a settlement. Um, but it opened the door for, for all of this to come. So, you know, I, I think want to acknowledge that with, with her and yeah, I mean, she's, um, she's been very good, you know, but in terms of development versus immediate success, it has to be somewhere in between. I mean, I I think if you are the club signing this player at 15, 16, 17, 18, you know, or even let's say an age in which said player gives up college eligibility, you have to in good faith feel that, she is good enough to play at the pro level at some point, let's say at, at the very least within the contract length that you, you know, provide her. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I would say in some capacity where you're committed to playing her, getting her training time immediately. And, and what does that look like? I mean, we just saw Chloe Ricketts this week, start a challenge cup game. And I would say, despite the challenge cup game being on big CBS, it was very much like, uh, let's call it heavy rotation, right? This was not any either team's A team, right? So there's an environment where you can start her as a 15-year-old. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're not exposing her necessarily to something that isn't good for her. Maybe you're not exposing yourself as a team in a way that, you know, you're pushing something here in a way that you're sacrificing a regular season game. So I think there's ways to do this. I think it's being done in these select scenarios we're talking about. And, you know, that has to be the case. It has to be an eye on the long term. But, you know, you can't go. I mean, that's where you get into the maybe is there a cynicism and and what does that look like of, you know, it can't be like maybe this player could be something down the line. But, you know, let's let's lock her up. Right. In, mm-hmm. in terms of a contract that that has to be where, you know, things have to be figured out. I, I don't know of that happening. I would hope that it doesn't. But I think we have to acknowledge that it's a possibility. So, you know, th- there can't be any expectation on a teenager of immediate success. And, and you know, with that said, we're seeing it in multiple scenarios right now. Again, a difference between 17, 18, which, you know, Shaw was 17 when she came in halfway through last year um, and, and 15, which is where, you know, I think you see Thompson and Shaw being ready. And look, th- that's globally too, right? There are 17 and 18 year olds who, are ready for this level. They're very few sure. and far between, but you know, we're, we're seeing that. And I think that's a, a good thing when, you know, on a case by case scenario. That actually, some of what you just said, just raised a question that I'm, I actually realize I don't know the answer to how does free agency work with U 18s? Cause if you're signed at 15 and your contract ends at 18 and that's three years in the league, are you an unrestricted free agent or does that only start once you turn 18? Yeah, it's a good question on on free agency once it comes. Um the so so you can't be traded, you can't be moved, yeah. you can't be waived. You know, all of those protections exist until that 18th birthday, which mm-hmm. is 
you know, I, I think is probably the bare minimum that needed to happen for, for the league. Right. So, um, you know, I think that is, that is a positive. I mean, we've talked about player safety and, and, you know, that's a whole, I think we could go pretty far down the line on sort of what that needs to to mean and what that looks like. And um, yeah, but you know, the, the fact that until 18th birthday, you know, can't be traded, can't be waived, cannot be in the expansion process or selected in it, you know, by which is essentially being moved rights being moved uh, must reside with a parent or guardian until 18. So, you know, I think that those protections exist. Um, and then obviously this U18 rule came, the actual formal rule came after uh, the CBA was fully ratified. So, yeah. you know, I think that'll be something, some of the nuance of that will be something to figure out, but, you know, I would have to think that um, as it stands and, and we can follow up on this and, and maybe update our listeners and after real time here, but, you know, with, with no provision of that, as it stands, I would assume that, they they hit that 18 mark. They're an adult anyway now, or, you know, by, by the terms laid out there, I guess. And, you know, then they fall under the same jurisdiction as any other player. Unless if the league says that, or somehow changes it or tries to argue <laughs> right. that you must have three no. years of an adult contract, you know, not the U18 contract, but right. like you said, we'll, we'll have to see, I think some of this nuance, you know, with all these new rules, you can, you kind of need to see how they work before you truly know how they will work. And this is a a great place to stop for a quick break, Jeff. So we will talk more about this when we come back in just a moment. And we're back. And Jeff, we've had some great conversation about some of the specific players. I would like to now kind of change the topic a little bit more to how these rules and these players impact the league and how women's soccer in the U.S. kind of functions more and generally. So you had mentioned academy protections and or let's let's more talk about how like the fact that like Jaden Shaw trained with the Washington spirit, but then still through discovery rules was taken to San Diego, despite the fact that the spirit had invested time with her. And then Casey Stoney recently um, revealed that Alyssa Thompson had actually been training with the wave for some time. And then of course was drafted by the, uh, by angel city. You have to think that, you know, with, with no Academy rules, like, or geography rules or, you know, any kind of protections afforded to teams that, train with younger players prior to signing them that this has to be a natural next step for the league to take to say that or that that some teams are going to start demanding it that oh if i've invested in this player if they've been on my w league team if they've gone up through our academy since they were younger that we want them or we want to have first dibs on signing them because we've invested in them do you think that's the natural natural next step for development that needs to be addressed in the league because the biggest problem there is that it's not like every team has an academy. It's not like every team does have a W league. So how do you work around this question when you have such an uneven distribution of, you know, these youthful opportunities for clubs? A golden question that I think is being (laughs) contemplated in New York. You know, we've heard about, this is, we're about four years on from, I, I recall multiple conversations that I had of, of, that described a homegrown player rule as imminent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously the pandemic came 
that uprooted all sorts of plans. But, you know, we never really saw a homegrown player rule. We haven't seen it, right? I mean, I think eventually we came to this U18 rule and, and that's sort of a version of it perhaps or, or just a version of getting younger players in the league. But, you know, there is no, there is not any uniformity in terms of academy systems. A lot of teams continue to use and have historically used sort of affiliate programs in that sense. They, they align themselves with youth clubs that, that then are possibly branded as, you know, their academies possibly are um, just strategic partners. So, you know, that's a whole nother game of uh, a subject of, of what are these teams doing to create their own internal pyramid? And, you know, I think in some cases it's probably wise to sort of leverage onto that. If you're, if you're the San Diego wave and you're training at the same field as the San Diego surf, which would probably argue at least from internally that it's, you know, one of the most elite clubs in the country. And obviously, you know, there's their 15 year old youngest player in the league, Melanie Barcinas. Yeah why wouldn't you align with them, right? Why would you suddenly create a competing academy? Um, so so I think that this is so case by case that, you know, that's where there's a real challenge for the league because, yeah, I mean, you have teams that have W League reserve sides. You have teams that have, or at least previously had WPSL reserve sides. You now have the USL coming into the professional equation. You have WPS, you have a couple of different entities, um, speaking about being lower division pro sides, then you have WPSL talking about being a D3 pro league on top of the amateur. So, you know, it's a convoluted pyramid just as it is on the men's side. And obviously we've seen that, you know, that model there in MLS, which, you know, I think you might be alluding to, which is, you know, problematic of, of at least the starting point was sort of these geographic zones and Mm -hmm. they made no sense. And you had teams just, claiming players from these geography zones that actually other teams had maybe scouted and identified, but somehow, you know, a state, two states away that some club is operating some branded satellite youth club, they claim as a home market and they can claim these players. So I think there's a lot of challenges there. I don't know how you necessarily solve them. I don't know if you solve them by pure geography. I mean, at at an, at an like, uh, an existential sort of level or, or just a hypothetical level, I guess, you know, if there is a spectacular player in any market, maybe especially a smaller market, quote unquote, right? Like, you know, if that's, if that's Louisville, if that's Raleigh, um, whatever, like if there's a player coming up through that system or coming up through those, those uh, youth clubs in that area, it feels right that a pro club would be able to, to say, okay, that's a player we should be able to sign. But at the same time, you know, some of the issues on the men's side that you see are, well, just because that player came up through, let's say, you know, I mean, some of these rich markets, uh, youth, you know, talent, rich markets, you know, how many clubs are there in Southern California, let's say, or Northern California, Chicago or New York, you know, should those clubs be able to go say, oh, hey, there's a there's an area native that we've had nothing to do with her development, but mm-hmm. we automatically get her claim, you know, claim to her because she's in our let's let's say it's a 70 mile radius, 75 mile radius, like the market rights or something. Right. Um, I don't think that would be fair either. So no. this is this is like a spider web that, you know, 
MLS has a 10 year jump on and hasn't necessarily figured out. Um, so I don't know. I think this is a good starting point, the U18 list. And, you know, in some ways I kind of like the idea that the onus is on the clubs to actually invest in some scouting and, and their networks to say, maybe these players aren't local. Maybe we're taking a player from somebody else's local market, but guess what? We did the work to identify her. I think that's actually a pretty good thing. I mean, there's also, you know, if, whether that's too loose of a rule or not, we'll find out. Yeah, it's interesting because, like you say, it is so different, and especially in small markets. You know, Louisville, I believe, is the only market that actually has the full pyramid with the, or maybe North Carolina does now too, where they do fully own their own ECANL um, youth academy, have the W League in the middle, and then it goes up to the first team. So they are, of course, very keen to be able to protect players that go through, you know, their full developmental period pyramid but yeah i mean like you said with san diego they're right next to this incredibly well-established very famous youth system why would they create their own to compete with it but then couldn't they take them on somehow maybe make an agreement to be an affiliate and be a feeder program for them and that would count in the same way who knows and obviously Mm. like you said no one has truly figured out the answer to this so we're not going to in this podcast either but You know, well, you know, I wanted to, sorry, I just wanted to say, like, I think one of the most interesting cases um, that I can remember historically in this league that, you know, I, I think for meanings of recent events, I guess, right, are probably maybe washed over a little bit because this was the Spirits Steve Baldwin era. But I remember having this conversation with him at some point years ago, well before everything happened with the Spirit, I guess. And, and they, the Spirit had branded youth academies Mm -hmm. and at least you know from from his position as owner at the time uh this was the opinion that they actually did away with their academies because they felt that again a talent rich market in the dmv that there was i think this is a good anecdote nationally here that it created a tension with youth clubs who they were actually trying to sell tickets to and get to come to games because they were competing for players. They were competing in, in inherently as businesses. So, you know, I, I think that there's a real spider web there, like we said, of, of um, you know, how do you navigate this when, you know, actually maybe the youth club has been around for decades and the NWSL team just got to town. Mm-hmm. There, there's a lot there. So um, it, it's, I, I think that's just an interesting anecdote. And there are a few clubs that, as you said, I mean, Orlando as well to add on, like there there are clubs that, sort of have the um you know the top-down approach but um and i also wanted to quickly update that i've got the immediate confirmation for us those years do count toward eligibility so oh. the 15 year olds get three years in the bank there toward uh maybe being free agents by the time they're restricted anyway at least by the time they're you know still teenagers i guess oh that's that's fascinating i would assume that they would try and uh hold on to them a little longer but hey, as it stands uh, now, <laughs> as it stands now, but that, that was, that's, that's fascinating. I'm, I'm so glad we got that clarification. That's really interesting. Uh, you know, another thing that these U18 players and these youth players, even you know, the 18 year olds being signed right out of high school, you know, they're still going into the draft, but these younger players are not, they're circumventing it. So what does that mean when we're seeing players, skip the draft get discovered get signed do you think that this is just another step towards the draft becoming completely redundant in the near future 
I know this was a hot topic um, around draft day in January. You know, I do not think the draft is still always going to be for somebody. Mm-hmm. And and the, these sort of workaround entry points are, again, we're, we're talking about the real elite of the elite of these young players, right? So I think we are going to see an increase in the number of players who enter the league sort of directly, let's call it, through these mechanisms. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of grouping Alyssa Thompson into this even too because all of those circumstances had to happen for LA to go get that pick. She was going to go to LA. I mean, it was very reminding me very much of the the draft day with with Mal Pugh, now Mal Swanson, that that where it eventually didn't happen and everybody thought that she was headed to Portland. But um, you know, that's always going to be for kind of those generational players or at least ones that teams identify as such. But, you know, the draft is still this entry point for how many other players, right? Dozens. Yeah. And, and then you have players who are even missing that draft, uh, the, you know, actually being selected on the day. Um, you, you see in Washington with with Paige Metier that, you know, the, the players that can go undrafted, get signed, go through a trial and, um, you know, maybe maybe make a team. So I don't see the draft immediately going away. I think it needs to evolve. Um, again, we've seen this on maybe an MLS side. I, I hate to reference it too much. And I know I have a couple times here in this show, but because I don't think that the NWSL should necessarily just follow MLS in, in whatever capacity, but historically that has kind of played out and, you know, the super draft once was this thing and now it's really dwindled into very much supplementary. I could see that the NWSL draft going down that path to a degree, but I don't see it disappearing. I think it's, it's always, especially with expansion, right? I, I mean, I think mm-hmm. that, um, at least in the short to medium term, it's another way for a new team to build a roster. It's another way for teams to replenish a roster. And, um, you know, we could go down the rabbit hole on what it means for players and not being able to pick their teams and, and all of that. But, um, you know, I'm interested to see. I mean, the, the NWSL will have challenges to that, right? They will have challenges within their own rules, which will be this U18 rule. They will have external challenges globally as players way i mean this is already happening and has been right a top player says you know do i want to be a top pick at a bad team that i might not want to be at or am i going to go sign in europe and and that's always going that that might be an increasing issue and then even internally you know this this usl super league is coming in they're not going to have a draft so um if i'm a now maybe the the very best players are not going there because it's not the established top flight but you know maybe very good players are looking and saying, Hey, I'd love to play in, in that city under those circumstances, maybe get a, a decent contract and, you know, have a say in it. So I think there's a lot of things that might challenge the draft. I don't think it's going away immediately. Okay. You know, another interesting thing, the, this U18 role and just signing these young players in general has kind of brought up, especially recently is what this means for us youth national teams. Because just earlier this week, we had Casey Stoney of San Diego stating that she was not releasing Jaden Shaw for the U-20 CONCACAF tournament. And it was because they were invested in her. They you know, have her on the senior team. And so she's not leaving for youth tournaments. Probably would be different if it was the senior U.S. team, but it wasn't. It's you know, for a U-20 tournament. Um, 
I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of this where NBSL coaches are saying, no, you're, you're signed as a pro. You are not going to be going for youth games outside of FIFA windows that exist. So what impact is this going to have on the youth national team pool going forward? How is this going to impact the U.S.'s performance in some of these tournaments? And how much does that matter to U.S. soccer? Well, to U.S. soccer, probably a good, you know, they probably care, but I think that's a fair question. How much does it matter in, you know, the grand scheme? Because I think from a player perspective, if you're a teenager in a pro environment like this training every day, I would say in general, again, I'm, I'm sort of overgeneralizing here, but, you know, that day to day environment is better than is going to make you a better player and, you know, and, and be better for you than, you know, the, the three weeks you might get at a youth world cup in addition to maybe, you know, playing in college again, very good college programs out there that, you know, biggest challenge for them is they, they can't necessarily operate on a full calendar right Mm -hmm. now, at least right now. But, um, you know, yeah, I mean, uh, Freya Coombs spoke about this a little bit on Thursday with, uh, she had media availability alongside Alyssa Thompson, who, you know, would have been eligible for the U twenties. And, you know, Coombs even said like, Again, in Thompson's case, I mean, I would argue she's headed to the World Cup the way it all looks. I mean, oh, she's I so at too. the very, you know, at the very least, she is in contention for a senior spot at the World Cup. So she needs to be staying in that flow and form with Angel City. Um, so same thing. And Olivia Moultrie would have been eligible or is eligible for, you know, the, this tournament as well, which is, is a qualifier too. I mean, I, I'm curious to see you know, maybe next year when it's at the actual World Cup, I think we're probably going to get the same answer. And and probably because all of those players could be in the senior picture as well. And, sure. and that will always take precedent. But um, yeah, I think, you know, there's two things I would say. One is, I mean, I said this before last week when Washington marvelously marked Jaden Shaw completely out of the game and she got subbed off at halftime. Before that, I thought she was one of the best players of the season so far. At 18 years old, she's the focal point of San Diego. So uh, she and Alyssa Thompson have been spectacular for their respective teams. Um, but I, I would also say, um, you know, I, I think that uh, this doesn't the, – the youth results are, are difficult because they don't always translate, right? The U.S. has struggled in youth World Cups or in youth World Cup qualifying even sometimes with some of the yeah. nuance of available spots for a decade now. They've also won the past two World Cups. Maybe the trickle-on is not there yet. Maybe they'll feel it. You know, you've got Spain winning every youth trophy under the sun, it feels like. They're still waiting for that moment at the senior level. Maybe those things will happen this summer. Maybe those will all come to a head, those trends. I don't know. But um, I I don't think you can necessarily translate those because even when you look at how many U-20 players go on to the senior level – I don't have the exact number in front of me, but it, it's it's not everybody. It's not yeah. even you know half of them typically in, in terms of established careers. So um, it, it just doesn't always directly correlate. Okay, well, that's very interesting. And really, the last question I have for you about trends and, and just bigger picture things is player safety, which has clearly been a huge issue around the NWSL the past, I mean, for its entire existence, but it's really come to a head since 2021 and you know there've definitely been lots of movement to make the league a safer place but when i see people argue against having teenagers in the league it is almost 100% 
people arguing about having children in a league that has been filled with rampant, you know, emotional and sexual abuse or misconduct. So what do you make of these concerns? And do you think the league has put in enough safeguards to make sure that these very young players are protected? Well, last question, a little bit loaded for, for me, maybe in terms of being able to assess, (laughs) um, you know, from a high level, um, you hope so. You, the rules that we have seen presented to us suggest that there's some consideration, right? The, the fact that they have to have a parent guardian, they have to have, um, they can't be waived, they can't be moved. And and those are sort of soccer oriented anyway. But, you know, if you you hear some of these teams speak and most of them, and you hear the players themselves speak about the support that they're getting. And, you know, obviously their parents are involved in these decisions that, you know, they're getting support to finish schooling. Um, they're getting sort of, um, you know, various levels of, of support training. You know, the, the staff is getting trained up on, on sort of how to um, safely and appropriately interact. And, and, you know, essentially, I mean, this is, this is working, this is minors in a workplace, right. Yeah. For, for, to dumb this down to any industry. So, um, you know, I share the concern given the, the recent history, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, clearly from the past year, we, we, there's, we don't know what we don't know. Right. I mean, how many things have come out that just, Nobody public facing, nobody from the media side, you know, seemingly many people within the league didn't even know. Sure. And um, so, so, you know, I think there's always that concern at the same time, obviously you have to, that, that one is the reform is sort of ongoing and two is, you know, I think you could always be fearful of that. Right. So at what point do you feel comfortable? How far removed do you need to be to do it? Um, to have these rules, to allow these players in. And I don't know the answer to that. Maybe you could say this is a little bit too soon, but, you know, these are also players who, I mean, look at how they're performing. They're obviously ready from a soccer perspective, some of them. So, you know, I I don't know. I think that might be a question that we really just have to monitor in terms of an answer and how it goes and, and, you know, maybe probe some teams a bit more about what they're doing. I mean, I think there's been some of that from a media side, but, you know, maybe more specifically, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think you have to like to, to the earlier part of our conversation of you hope teams are in good faith in, in terms of signing these players and what they're doing. I mean, you really have to hope that they have have done their sort of work internally to set up that environment. And um, I think inevitably some have some have not as much, you know, done or done as well. And and we'll see. And, and um, yeah, I think that is probably, you know, beyond the talent that we speak of that that is probably the thing to monitor from a team perspective. Well, that's all very interesting. And I definitely agree with you, but this is obviously something we can't answer yet. And we'll just kind of have to wait and see, hope for the best. And like many things with these youthful players coming in, just kind of see how it works out, how the rules change and, and just how this process develops over the next couple of years. Cause it's all, still so new and still just being figured out, you know, as we're seeing it adapt in real time. But that's about all the time we have. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. We would like to extend our thanks to our producer, Jacqueline Purdy, and I'm Becky Morgan. And on behalf of everybody at Equalizer, we look forward to joining you next week. Thank you.